Welcome to the Focus on Agriculture podcast, where we address topics relevant to today's consumers and farmers. I'm Preston Schrader. And I'm Jason Carr. Preston and I are Technology Development Reps, or TDRs, for Bear Crop Science. As TDRs, our primary mission is to help solve agronomic challenges that farmers face and to understand how to best utilize the bear suite of products, including traits, genetics, crop protection, as well as digital tools, to create solutions that are tailored to each grower's unique farm. We have a couple goals with this podcast, the first being to help farmers across the country to address challenges that they face throughout the growing season while introducing them to game-changing technology that has the potential to radically benefit their farming practices. We also want to provide the consumers of ag commodities who are not necessarily involved in agriculture with information about the practices farmers engage in and the reasons behind them, hopefully provide a greater level of understanding and comfort with how their food is produced. Today, we're going to discuss the safety of the modern food supply. Our guest is a registered dietitian, Leah McGrath. So Leah, thanks for joining us here this afternoon. Uh, to start out with, could you tell me what you currently do and then maybe tell us a little bit about your education and background? Sure. Um, I have been a retail or supermarket dietitian for about 19 years, but my background includes working as a dietitian in public health for the WIC, which is the Women, Infants, and Children program. And I was also a dietitian and officer in the U.S. Army. So I got into dietetics as almost a second career. My first, I guess I maybe my third career. It's my third career. I used to be in the restaurant business, and I was also in um, marketing and human resources, and I went back to school and became a dietitian. So I have my undergraduate degree in, um, well, one in speech communication and one in human nutrition, and I've um, done work on my master's in marketing, and I have certification as lactation consultant and health promotion, uh, that kind of thing. Wow. So you have not only a pretty diverse educational background, but you have the experience to go along with it. So that's great. Um, Can you tell us what a registered dietitian is? So um, registered dietitian is a protected um, title or term in the United States. And so um, a lot of times you'll see people refer to themselves as either registered dietitian or registered dietitian nutritionist. So either an RD or RDN. So uh, registered dietitians have, at minimum, an undergraduate degree. Most have a master's degree, and it it doesn't necessarily need to be in nutrition. Uh, Then in order to become a dietitian, we have to uh, be accepted in and complete a 1,200-hour internship. And it's a very competitive internship. The match rate is about 50%, so only half the people who apply to get into an internship are actually accepted. Once you get through, the internship is like similar to what a physician would do in that you go through a lot of different practice areas. So you get um, experience in clinical and public health, um, food service, administrative. Um, Some programs do things in entrepreneurial work, um, sports nutrition. Then you have to pass a nationally administered board exam, and um, then you become a registered dietitian, and then you keep up educational credits on an annual basis to maintain your credentials. Wow. So it sounds like it's a pretty um, involved process. 
Yeah, and a lot of people, you know, what, what the common thing people say is, you know, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. I mean, you could call yourself a nutritionist if you wanted to. The clerk at GNC can call themselves a nutritionist. But um, what you really want to look for is somebody um, in terms of human nutrition and counseling people about uh, eating habits and optimal diet for different disease states or, or life cycle um, changes, um, then it, it really should be a registered dietitian because we have that kind of background experience and training to counsel people. So, you know, you kind of reference. there's a lot of terms out there that get thrown around. I mean, even, you know, I don't know, I've seen nutritionalist, I've seen nutritionist, I've seen naturopath, I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that oh, right. Yeah. I've seen, you know, right. chiropractors are always selling supplements or cleanses or whatever. So is there any training that's required to uh, claim yourself to be a food professional or to give advice? I mean, is there something that regulates that? Well, um, there is, but it's on a state-by-state basis. So um, uh, in the United States, in some countries, in countries, uh, we don't have a national licensure program um, for dietitians. So because of that, you do see situations like you described, you know, maybe a naturopath or a chiropractor might be prescribing, and I'm putting that in your quotes, some sort of diet or a detox or a cleanse. Um, and certain states have um, very specific licensure, which prohibits people from prescribing um, medically necessary diets unless they're a registered dietitian or have equivalent amount of training. Uh, and are licensed at the state level. So that protects the consumer um, from people who are not qualified, not credentialed, not educated, not experienced from giving out information that, that could potentially be harmful. Um, but that's on a state-by-state basis. Um, I think right now there might be, I'm not absolutely sure, but I think there's somewhere around 30 states in the United States that have a, some sort of licensure that requires people to um, be licensed at the state level to be able to provide nutrition information, and they have to show what kind of credentials and education and training they have in order to be able to to provide that information. Seems like that would kind of be a bare minimum for someone giving that kind of information that there would be some kind of licensure process, but um, I guess we can't count on every state doing everything the same way. Exactly. So in modern agriculture, uh, farmers today use a lot of crop protection uh, technologies as well as things like genetically modified organisms. From your perspective, should uh, consumers at the grocery store, should they be worried about the safety of um, of these crops, I, I don't think so, um, and I and I think honestly that most consumers, most customers, are not. I think, you know, when I talk to people at you know on a one-on-one basis or in groups, I think the majority of people are have other things that are upper you know top of mind for them. You know, being able to put food on the table, what does it taste like, what's the price. But unfortunately, um, the conversation that we become more aware of are, are the loud voices in the room which um, kind of propel 
brands or are very prevalent in social media that say the opposite, that say, you know, everybody wants everything to be organic or everybody wants everything to be pesticide-free or everybody's afraid of GMOs. But I think the biggest block of consumers may not even know what GMOs are. I mean, I can ask that question to people and many, you know, can't even tell you what those letters mean. So, you know, I'm not convinced that the majority of consumers are really that concerned about it. I sometimes uh, joke with, you know, among my friends or whatever that this is definitely an American problem or a, a first world problem kind of. Uh, we have abundant food supply and we have a lot of options and we have the disposable income to, to make those choices. I'm not sure it's like that in other parts of the world. So we sometimes hear or read scary headlines about pesticides being found in breakfast cereal or whatever it is. Is this a big risk to the public? Well, I think the problem is is that that those kinds of headlines are seldom put in context. So you're right. You know, they they try and um, make that case for something that would would be especially concerning to parents and moms when it comes to their child's health, but they don't bother to um, explain that it might be in parts per billion and the amount that you'd have to eat to have any kind of um, negative effect would be physically impossible to eat. So they don't ever really frame it up so that people understand at what level, you know, parts per billion, um, which is typically what they're measuring at now. Um, so it's very strategic of the groups who are trying to do that to alarm specific groups to, to, to you know, make the case about specific products that would, you know, concern people the most. Um, you know, they never really say anything about like, oh, you know, there's, there's pesticides, you know, there's glyphosate in cooked broccoli or, you know, Brussels sprouts or something like that. They want to pick something that they know the most people are going to, it's going to resonate with most people. So let's pick something like cereal, breakfast cereal. Yeah, it's definitely a big topic of conversation in the, the marketplace of ideas today. Uh, GMOs are also the other, I mean, big topic of conversation from your perspective, from a nutritional perspective, are there any differences between GMO and non-GMO foods? Well, um, no, there's no nutritional difference. Um, you know, I think if more people realized what um, that farmers, that many of the, in, in many, not, not all the cases, many of the cases with genetically engineered crops that can enable farmers to use fewer pesticides, I think, they would be, I think that would give people a sense of relief. So I think when, when you explain it to people that way, like, well, this means that farmers can use fewer pesticides. Um, I, I think that makes people actually more comfortable. But, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of times people don't, they don't know what the word means. They think that there are, um, that, I, I mean, I get customers who if they see something that looks odd or unusual in the store, like a, a, a very large strawberry or seedless watermelon or an oddly shaped tomato, they automatically think it's a GMO. And then you have to explain to them that 
no, those products are not GMO. So they're not, they weren't genetically engineered to be bigger or have a weird shape or anything like that. So that's, that's something just happens in breeding. So there's a lot of fear and confusion um, because people don't really know or understand understand why farmers are using those types of seeds and why why it might be a better thing for the environment and for food supply. So sometimes sometimes you can explain it to people and they get it. It's an interesting point that you make about the less dependence on pesticides. I mean, the uh, most common on a lot of the acres is, is BT corn, which um, as you probably know, is a soil bacteria that kills mm-hmm. certain lepidopteran species. And that has been used for um, since the beginning of organic production, basically, and organic systems sprayed on the crops right up until the time of harvest. But suddenly you put it a specific protein from that bacterium into a plant, and um, it's scary for some reason. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can remember going to a farmer's market and and the guy had all kinds of, you know, signage up on his little chalkboard, and he said, you know, this is organic corn. And I said, and it was perfect. And I said, oh, so uh, uh, you use BT on your organic corn? And he looked at me, and he was like, yes. And I'm like, so you use the same thing that, the, like, a farmer who's planting BT corn would use, but you just spray it on the corn. So, so I, I mean, I think it's... I think that's just a really an interesting conversation to have with people about um, that, that they don't realize that either with BT or um, or, or they don't have thinking you know, as they they're hearing all all kinds of things about glyphosate and they don't make the connection with the Roundup they're using in their own yard um, and realizing that those are those are similar products. So. So another issue we hear sometimes thrown about when we're talking about GMOs and food is the alleged increase in food allergies. And I don't, I haven't studied that. I don't know if that's real or not. You may know a little bit more about that. Are we, are we seeing more food allergies? And if we are, is that a function of the GMOs and food? You know, I had that, uh, my sister-in-law is actually a board-certified allergist, and I asked her that question years ago, and because I wanted to know for myself, I mean, you know, wow, that's, that would be scary, and if there was some connection, and she, her response, and she's a very smart lady, and, and everything that she said to me 10 years ago, I still haven't, haven't seen anything to contrary, even from the American Academy of Allergy and Immunology, is that, yes, um, food allergies have increased, but um, there are a lot of problems with just leaving it at that because, first of all, people self-diagnose. Um, so we don't, we don't actually know a really good number because if it's, self-reported and it's self-diagnosed. We don't know if those are true food allergies. And then the speculation is there could be a lot of different reasons for that, um, including the type of birth the person had, whether it was cesarean or vaginal birth, what how foods were introduced um, to the child. Um, there's also one called the hygiene theory, like maybe we're keeping our kids too clean. You know, they're not, you know, 
hand sanitizers and they're, and they're not exposed to things to really challenge their immune system enough? Um, or are there different environmental factors affecting the, the gut microbiome that might get people, um, pre, you know, predispose them to food allergies? So, uh, but nowhere have I seen by reputable allergy institutions that connects um, food allergies with GMOs. I read an interesting paper recently where they were theorizing that one of the reasons for all of the nut allergies was that they had been recommending not to feed nuts to infants for fear of allergies right. and were actually causing the allergies by yep. doing that. Right, exactly. Yeah, a good friend of mine is with the peanut board, and she's they've um, they've worked with a lot of researchers, and now they're they the American Academy of Pediatrics has actually changed recommendations for introduction of peanuts now. Hmm. That's fascinating. So when I go to the grocery store, I see a price discrepancy between organic food and normal food, quote unquote. Is there any scientific data or is organically produced food actually better for you is there any justification from a nutritional standpoint for that price premium right so um well you know back when i mean i've actually been a dietitian before they had the organic so i remember when it wasn't even a thing but um the organic symbol was never meant to be a nutritional um qualifier for products and not a nutritional one, not a food safety one. It was always meant to just identify some sort of agricultural certification program or agricultural standard. Um, what I tell people, our customers a lot, you know, when they ask, well, you know, how come the organic things are, you know, the organic produce is more expensive than non-organic or conventional is that, well, you know, organic farmers don't have as many tools in their toolbox they don't, oftentimes they don't get the same yield. So they um, are spending more and ending up with less. So you end up spending more at the supermarket to be able to buy those products. But yeah, a lot of times customers think the organic marketing industry has done a really good job of convincing people that organic has a health halo and um, or deserves a health halo, and they, you know, people think it's pesticide free. That's pretty much the most common reason I get from customers as to why they buy organic is that farm, these organic farmers don't use pesticides. So when you tell them, well, actually, it's quite possible that they did use pesticides, they're allowed to use pesticides. It doesn't mean pesticide free. They're with the I mean, 99% of the time, they're shocked because they didn't realize that. So, um, yeah, I think I think organic has that health halo that people think it's a better for me choice, um, and uh, and that can be a little scary because you know there there was actually a study that came out in I guess it was probably 2014 where they looked at. Uh, lower income population and said, you know, to check about their awareness about pesticides and organic. And they found that, that people were aware, even in the lower income population, about the supposed health halo of organic. And 
if they couldn't buy organic, they were oftentimes not buying any produce at all. And um, that's like the worst case scenario that you, you'd want to see. You know? So if you have the money and you want to buy or the organic products because they look they look better for to you or you think they're going to taste better, then that's fine. But if you're not buying any fruits and vegetables, that's not a good thing. Yeah, that I I had never thought about it from that perspective, and that is kind of a scary perspective. It would actually stop someone from buying the healthier product completely just because they couldn't afford the organic. Um, that's definitely a, a bad situation. Yeah. This has been really interesting, at least for me. And there's one more topic that I would like to hear your perspective on, and that is the fad diets that are out there. Um, I'll use gluten-free as an example. Can you talk a little bit about those diets? Are the, is that, you know, these diets where you eliminate a certain part of your food intake, a, a certain nutrient or whatever, um, are they healthy? Are they a good idea? Um, I think it's important to, of course, right up front say, you know, that um, all these diets um, may have benefits for certain individuals. For example, you know, gluten-free is certainly a medically necessary diet for somebody with celiac disease, but that's only what one percent of the population. Um, and and the whole popularity of gluten-free has really kind of as a diet has really sort of diminished in the past few years. And I think what we're seeing now are ones like the keto diet and the carnivore diet have become much more popular. And so having been a dietitian for 25 years, I've just seen a lot of different um, diets come and go in popularity. And I mean, I'm, I mean, I can think about everything from the real short-term ones like the cabbage soup diet to the um, South Beach diet, the Zone diet. Um, it would be fun to figure out how many I could name. But it seems like, um, uh, you know, every year you have kind of like the diet du jour, you know, which is the most popular diet. Um, the gluten-free diet certainly really saw a big hit in popularity. I think that's really diminished, except for the celiac, a uh, uh, person with celiac disease who, for whom it's a medically necessary diet. And now you're seeing um, a big push for like the keto diet and even the carnivore diet, which is incredibly restrictive. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's basically just eating meat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's, it sounds, yeah. it sounds good in theory, but um, it's probably not the healthiest <laughs> thing. <laughs> no, yeah. Well, and I think, you know, a lot of these people, do see success on a short-term basis for this, but then, you know, short, like, what what studies seem to show is, like, every diet, every one of these diets is only as good as someone's ability to maintain it. And then you have to ask yourself, um, is it possible to maintain it? Is it healthy to maintain it? And how much of a social life how much of your social life are you going to have to, you know, change or restrict based on that kind of diet? So, um, yeah, so, I, I mean, it, you you kind of see them come, you kind of see them go. People have amazing success sometimes. And, and, and as a dietitian, that's really kind of tricky because, you know, if somebody is really desperate to lose weight for their health, 
and how and how they feel you don't want to kind of um knock them and say knock them down and say well that's a terrible diet that's really unhealthy you probably want to find something that you know figure out why it's working for them and maybe try and figure out a better version of that that they can maintain for a longer period of time because um you know rather than alienate them by saying oh you know that keto diet's awful because you're not having any whole grains and you're barely eating any fruit and your breath stinks because you're in ketosis, you know, so, but yeah, that's, you know, you know, that's not going to make any friends. So <laughs> sounds um, a little counterproductive. <laughs> right. So, you know, but it, it just seems like, you know, we just see this happen every year where, you know, you just kind of sit and go, okay, well, what's it going to be this year? We, you know, which, which nutrient are they or ingredient are people going to exclude and you know who's going to capitalize on that and then you know once it starts hitting the grocery store shelves as a product the end is in sight right now that now that we have keto cookies and keto ice cream and keto meal replacement shakes keto is probably on its way out so um so it'll be the next new shiny diet in a couple of a couple of months, I think. Yeah, I, so I have another question for you. Um, a lot of my friends they share a lot of these videos on YouTube that are not based in science, and they're obviously usually very skewed. There's always a picture of a guy in a hazmat suit spraying some horrible chemical on a mutant plant. Um, I'm just kind of curious, do you have any documentaries or, um, videos that you typically recommend on things like Netflix or Amazon or anything like that? Yeah, I I wish there were more of them. And that's kind of the problem is a lot of the, um, shockumentaries, um, seem to get a lot more play and, the have a lot better funding than the ones that are science-based. So the one, the three that I would typically recommend would be food evolution, which does a, um, they do a really, they did a really great, great job explaining um, uh, genetic engineering and the benefits to, um, to small farmers in, um, in Africa. Um, License to farm is another one, and I think farmland would be another one. Those are the top three that come to mind the most for me. And again, I wish there were more because it feels like, you know, there's so many others that um, portray farmers in a negative light, portray our modern food system and science technology in a really negative light, and um, uh, and and we don't have a whole lot. There's not a lot to combat that sometimes. Yeah, so a lot of times the loudest voices are not necessarily the voices uh, that are backed by facts, but that's unfortunate. Right, right. So, Leah, this has been, like I, I mentioned, this has been a really in- interesting conversation for me, um, and we appreciate your time. Yeah, no problem. We always like to give an opportunity for our guests to kind of talk about usually it's from an agriculture perspective the next big thing that they see coming on the horizon or the next important thing to be aware of is there anything like that that you see 
coming or from a from a food perspective or a nutritional perspective or is there anything upcoming technology or or event or whatever it may be well i mean i think that there's i i think that most of my customers or most consumers really have no um inkling what an amazing food system we do have and the fact that it's so global um, and um, which is a good thing but then when things happen globally like we're seeing now with the African swine fever that they there can be this domino effect that ultimately affects prices in the United States um, so I, I I think that um, we're going to increasingly become aware of um, of the global food economy, and um, that we'll have to be aware of that. There's just no way of escaping that. I mean, right now, and the United States is such a privileged place. I mean, we grow a lot of our own food. We don't have to import a lot of our own food. We have access to so many different um, agricultural regions. I mean, California, Florida, in the Midwest. Um, it's we're we're truly truly blessed. But um, uh, I think in years to come, it, it's gonna that conversation is gonna have to change a little bit with with climate change and and changes in agriculture that um, that consumers will have to become more aware of of how dependent we are on each other around the world. Yeah, it's, it's really exciting the choices we have now as far as fresh produce and things like that, even from when oh, yeah. I was a kid 40 years ago. Um, oh, yeah. It's a lot different than it used to be. Totally, yeah. Well, Leah, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to join us for a call here today. Uh, in closing, would you like to share a way that the listeners could get a hold of you, maybe your Twitter handle or a website? Sure. Um, so I'm on Twitter as Leah McGrath, R, uh, Leah McGrath RD on Twitter. Um, I also run a group for dietitians called Build Up Dietitians, where I share a lot of um, fact-based information about science and agriculture and biotechnology. And um, I have a team of people that I work with on that. And so that's Build Up RDNs on Twitter and Build Up Dietitians on Facebook. So, and then I'm also on um, Facebook as Leah McGrath Dietitian. So, well, thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs>